Hello, Nigel Craig here. This is a podcast of the sermon preached on the 29th of January 2017 in Belmont Presbyterian Church. It's part four of the big story of the Bible and the title is Moses and the Exodus. Friday passed, that's the 27th of January, was Holocaust Memorial Day, a day for sombre reflection on the genocide of European Jewry during the Second World War. It was a day for mourning the six million Jewish men, women and children who perished under the Nazis in ghettos, mass shootings, in concentration camps and extermination camps, not to mention the other groups of people targeted by Nazi hatred. Today we turn to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and its account of one of the earliest waves of anti-Semitic oppression and violence. This took place under Pharaoh and leads us to consider the role that Moses played in freeing the Israelites from Egypt, the house of bondage, to use a biblical turn of phrase. At the beginning of January, I began a series of sermons entitled The Big Story, an overview of the major themes and an overview of the narrative of the Bible, beginning in Genesis and hopefully finishing in Revelation. So far, we've looked at the first three parts of the big story, creation, fall, and Abraham, which is the first half of Genesis. And indeed, you can look at those, or listen to those rather, on earlier podcasts. But today we move on to the fourth part of the big story, when Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. This seminal event in Hebrew history is known as the Exodus, from two Greek words, ex, out, and hodos, meaning way or road. Today I want to draw your attention to two aspects of the Exodus. The first is the way out, and the second, living it out. First of all, the way out. Last week I was honoured to attend an event in Belfast uh, to mark Holocaust Memorial Day, an event at which Teddy Dixon was interviewed. G.I. Teddy Dixon from the Craig Estate in East Belfast, was part of the American Army Corps that liberated the Nazi concentration camp at Dachau in 1945. To quote from the Holocaust Memorial website, Dachau was the first concentration camp to be constructed by the Nazis and one of the last to be liberated. American soldiers were largely unprepared for the horrors that awaited them. Their courageous advance, however, led to the liberation of some 180,000 prisoners. The story of Exodus is also one of liberation. You may recall that the book of Genesis finishes in Egypt. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, had moved to the fertile region of Goshen during Joseph's premiership in order to escape a severe famine. There the Israelites grew and grew in numbers. We then move on to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Centuries pass, the regimes change in Egypt, and the large immigrant Hebrew community falls out of favour with the new regime. The Israelites are conscripted to assist with the construction of magnificent buildings, and as an ethnic group are seen as a threat to national security. Then a cruel policy of birth control, the root of genocide, was implemented with the decreed destruction of all newly born Hebrew boys. At this moment, the story of Moses begins, Exodus chapter 2. 
The Hebrew baby boy is saved from death by the determination of his mother and sister and the compassion of an Egyptian princess who finds his floating cot amongst the bulrushes. Moses is eventually raised in Pharaoh's palace, yet still aware of his Hebrew ethnicity. But one day he murders an Egyptian and has to flee for his life. He escapes to the desert and makes his home amongst a rural community in Midian. But God hasn't forgotten about his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and decides that the time is right to rescue them. God calls Moses from the flames of the burning bush to return to Egypt and lead the Hebrew people out of slavery. Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses, along with his brother Aaron, challenged Pharaoh Ramses II to let the people go. When Pharaoh refuses, God sends ten plagues to the country. The Hebrews are spared these plagues, particularly the final disaster of the death of the firstborn, which they avoid with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Unable to take any more, Pharaoh allows the Israelites to go. A crowd of 600,000 men, not counting men and, or not counting women and children, so there were probably a couple of million, leave Egypt en masse. God parts the Red Sea before the Israelites and allows it to come crashing back over the heads of the Egyptians who are in pursuit. The Israelites are now free, safe in the wilderness. When in the wilderness, God miraculously provides for the Israelites in those early days by turning bitter waters into fresh springs, by sending manna and quail, and by drawing water from a rock. So that, in a nutshell, is the story of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. The Exodus, or the road out, the way out, the departure, is seen as the pivotal event in the history of Israel. For it shows the lengths to which God will go in order to rescue his people from slavery. What has all this to do with us? Ray Ortland once wrote that the great exodus out of Egypt has not just a one-time event, was not just a one-time event, it was a pattern. So it becomes a template for how God rescues his people from slavery. Now, whenever we turn to the New Testament, we see the exodus reflected in the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. We see, first of all, that we're all enslaved, that we are all in chains in the house of bondage. Now, you might ask, slaves to what? Well, according to Jesus, we are slaves to sin. John chapter 8 and verse 34, which I'll just read to you now. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And that includes me. That includes you. We can't stop doing what is wrong and are incapable of doing what God commands. We live for ourselves and not for God. That's naturally speaking without the grace of God at work in our lives. But the scripture also says that we're slaves to the devil. 2 Timothy 2.26 
He is, as it were, the spiritual Pharaoh who holds us captive. And we are slaves to death and to hell. We are captive and we cannot escape our fate. But the gospel announces great news of liberation. Jesus Christ is the new Moses. He's the ultimate Moses who leads us out of slavery. He breaks the handcuffs of sin and guilt. He releases us from Satan's bondage. He brings us freedom and the hope of eternal life in the promised land of heaven. And I could also add, God continues to rescue us as individuals, as families and as communities from a whole host of foes. For, to quote Ray Ortland, the great exodus out of Egypt was not a one-time event. It was a pattern. And when we turn to the New Testament, we also discover that Jesus is the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. He is the lamb without blemish or spot who has been slain in our place. So whenever his blood is daubed, as it were, on the doorposts of our souls, the angel of death, God's wrath, passes over us, so we need not fear condemnation. This is how Peter puts it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Or spot. In the first Exodus, God emancipated his people Israel from Egypt. Then at the cross, God brought about the greatest Exodus of all, the promise of freedom for all who will trust Jesus Christ, who is both the Passover Lamb and the new Moses. So that was the first major point the way out. The second major point I would like to make is living it out. A minister was almost finished preaching a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. Next week I plan to preach on the Ninth Commandment and the sin of lying. To help you understand my sermon, I I want you all to go home and read Mark chapter 17. The following Sunday, as he prepared to deliver his sermon, the minister asked for a show of hands. He wanted to know how many had read Mark chapter 17. Most hands in the congregation went up. The minister smiled and said, Mark has only 16 chapters. I will now proceed with my sermon on the sin of lying. Following the Exodus, Moses takes the newly liberated people of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God gives him the Ten Commandments and many other laws, telling God's freed people how they should live. They have experienced the way out. He now explains to them how they should live out their freedom. Now, from Exodus through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll find a whole range of moral, social and religious laws concerned with things we moderns spend a lot of time talking about. Compensation, livestock, theft, borrowing money, lawsuits, appropriate relationships, treatment of the vulnerable and foreigners and so on. Let's consider how we should live out our rescue in Christ. And I want to ask three very simple questions. When did God give the Ten Commandments and the law? What is the nature of those laws? And why should we as Christians observe and keep God's law? When did God give the Israelites the Ten Commandments? This is a very important point. 
for us to make. And that is, he gave the Ten Commandments, he gave the law after they had been set free, after they had been rescued. If you look at Exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2, you will see, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Then verse 3 reads, You shall have no other gods before me. And the Ten Commandments follow, or rather the other nine. Now, I hope you can see the importance of this. The Ten Commandments and other laws were not given to earn God's favour, but rather they were given in response to God's saving activity. They weren't given to bring salvation, but in response to salvation. Now, I hope you can see the links with the Christian life. We do not strive to obey the Ten Commandments in order that we might win God over, or that we might earn his love, or that we might earn a place in heaven. Rather, God accepts us by his grace as we trust in his promises in Christ. We are then encouraged to keep his commandments as a response to that, as an overflow of that. Second question, what what kind of laws were given? The last section of the book of Exodus 25 to 40, much of Leviticus and large parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy are taken up with how the Israelites should worship God and live for God. But as we read these laws, many of them seem to us to be very tedious and we wonder what laws should we observe today as Christians? Should we observe all of them, some of them, or none at all? And if we are only to observe some of them, do we just pick out the ones that we like and those that we don't? Thankfully, the New Testament gives us a system for differentiating between Old Testament laws. And this system is neither arbitrary nor subjective. To put it very simply, there are some laws that apply to Christians today and some that don't. Some of the laws that were temporary and others that were for all time. We can detect at least four types of law in the Torah, the first three of which no longer apply to Christians today. First of all, you have the ceremonial laws. At the very centre of the Israelite camp in the wilderness, they were instructed to set up a special tent known as the tabernacle. Their God would symbolically live and there the people would come to worship him. There are details given of the materials to be used in the making of this tent, how it was to be constructed and how it was to be furnished. There are instructions given concerning the ordination and robing of the priests. The question is, why do we not follow those instructions today? This is the law of God. Why do we not follow it today? Why do we no longer make sacrifices at a tabernacle? Why do we not travel to Jerusalem, to a temple, to make sacrifices? Well, according to the New Testament, and especially the book of Hebrews, the old system of worship came to an end with the death of Jesus Christ, who is the final and perfect sacrifice. Do you remember when he hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. His blood is enough to cover all of our sins. Then we have dietary laws. 
Sometimes you'll hear on the radio or in conversation people mocking Christians for eating shellfish, ignoring the Old Testament prohibition, whilst at the same time holding to biblical sexual morality as set out in some of the laws in the Old Testament. Are they simply cherry-picking? Again, we need to turn to the New Testament. In Mark chapter 17 and verse 19, we read that Jesus himself declared all foods clean. And can you remember from Acts chapter 10 when Peter received his vision of a sheet being let down out of heaven with all kinds of animals in it and the instruction is given from God, slay and eat. In other words, Christians are no longer bound by the Old Testament dietary laws. And we have a third category of laws known as civil laws or judicial laws. Laws that were given how to run the nation of Israel. There were capital and corporal punishments. But the Christian church is not a nation state. It's a global fellowship within states. So the specifics of Old Testament judicial law are no longer binding on Christian people. Although they've proved, proved to be useful as a guide when framing the laws of Europe and other countries over the centuries. But then you have a fourth category. And those are the laws that we would classify and refer to as the moral law. That's a phrase that's used in the Shorter Catechism, summarised in the Ten Commandments. These spell out how God expects his people to behave towards him and how he expects them to behave towards others. In other words, how we should love God and how we should love our neighbour. And this moral law never changes. So whenever Jesus comes, he reinforces this moral law. He doesn't throw it out. So it is still good for us to respect our parents. It is still good for us to honour the marriage bond. It is still good for us to be honest in our speech and business, to rest and worship one day a week, and so on. Then the final question that I raise is, why should we attempt to obey God's law, God's moral law, as summarised in the Ten Commandments. Why should we allow it to be our guide? If Christ's death has brought us forgiveness for our transgression of that law, and if Christ himself has kept that law perfectly on our behalf. Well, obedience is a marker that we've understood the gospel, that we have embraced Jesus Christ. We've understood that we've been set free from slavery, but we're now servants of the living God, wishing to do what he commands. Obedience is a sign of our gratitude. It's a sign of our loyalty to the one who has rescued us. Obedience is only possible, of course, with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But obedience is also a sign of our love for neighbour and most of all, our love for God. For as Jesus Christ himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments.